Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kia ora and welcome from RNZ National. Here's Our Changing World with me, Alison Balance. When the ground starts shaking these days, many of us head online either to the GeoNet website or its very popular Twitter feed. Within just one or two minutes, GeoNet will tell us the magnitude of the earthquake as well as its location and depth. But it hasn't always been that speedy, as I discover when I visit GNS Science to mark GeoNet's 15th anniversary. And happy anniversary, by the way. Caroline Little and Ken Gledhill take me to the briefing room to see what earthquakes have been happening. So look, there's a little event. 37 minutes ago, magnitude 2.2, out in Cook Strait. That's pretty tiny. Would anyone have felt that? No. These are ones that happen all the time out there. Interestingly, the first location was made in about 34 seconds after the event started. For a small event, that's pretty typical. For a bigger event, it might be more than like a minute before you get the first reasonable location. Now talk me through what we see on the screen, because you've got a a purple circle with an orange dot in the middle, so that's clearly right. the epicentre of the earthquake. That's and there's the, a whole lot of lines coming into it, so explain that, all of that to me. That's just the path to the stations that it's used. And the purple, well, ellipse really is an estimate of the errors involved. So really to detect where an earthquake is, you're triangulating from a whole lot of ground stations. Correct. How many ground stations have you got in total? Over 600. 142 main stations used to locate earthquakes, and we can factor in another 225 odd to help locate if we needed it. So then you've got the GPS networks that are up and down the country, and there's about 200 of those. Now it's interesting looking at where they are. So there's quite a big cluster around the central North Island, where the volcanoes are. Yes, You've got good coverage across Wairarapa around Wellington yeah. and, of course, now a big cluster around Christchurch. Well, interestingly enough, we actually had that cluster. It's densified a bit, but we had very good coverage in uh, Canterbury before the earthquakes happened, and that was really aimed at the Alpine Fault event that has been long thought to be on the way and uh, to get the effects in Christchurch of that event. Well, as it happened, it wasn't that event we got. It was one that was closer to Christchurch. You notice large parts of the South Island are probably poorly covered, you'd, you'd say. The North Island is pretty well covered. This is above the subduction zone where the two plates, the Pacific Plate, is subducted or pushed down under the Australian plate. So Wellington up through to East Cape. Yeah. And then the volcanic regions, which are Taranaki, the central volcanic region, and Auckland, which is built on a volcanic field, of course. So So GeoNet is about much more than just earthquakes? Much more. Earthquakes, tsunamis, landslides. Volcanoes. Volcanoes. (laughs) And then we do things like we do actually monitor some structures as well. So that's two 
get data that will feed into research which will improve the building codes longer term. You get to see how structures respond. To the earthquakes, yes. And how they respond when we're looking at a large building, how they respond at the lower levels and how that um, contrasts to what the upper levels are experiencing as well? Yeah, so there can be maybe a factor of five between the ground floor and the top floor, uh, depending on how stiff the building is, basically. How many earthquakes a day do you detect? The average is 57 now, two every hour of every day, 20,000 a year. But most of those we don't feel? No, uh, we only feel a small portion of those quakes. Mm. How many big quakes do we get? One magnitude six a year. Mm. On average it's been a bit higher than that recently, like uh, 2011 where you had a whole series, 2012, 13, also well above that. Hopefully it's settled back down to closer to that figure now. So how long has GeoNet been doing its stuff? was officially launched on 1 July 2001, but of course at the very beginning we just took over what was the research network and then we've totally redeveloped that into a real-time network where we can respond to things very quickly, but still the other part of our job is actually collecting the data for research to inform how New Zealand deforms, how New Zealand changes with time, basically it underpins our understanding of the geological hazards in our country. We take it for granted these days that if, the, if we do feel an earthquake, then I think there's a, I'm one of a number of a great many people, in fact, who rush to the GeoNet website to see, well, what was that, where was it, how deep was it? But remind me where you came from. So back in the 1990s, if there was an earthquake, what, was, what could you do An in interesting response? process, really. Uh, we had these research sites, seismographs around New Zealand, and they recorded on magnetic tape, and they had a little printout as well. So if an event happened, what we had to do is we had to ring up the farmer whose property the instrument was on, hope he was at home, and then he would go over, tear off this bit of paper, bring it to the phone and read out the reading to us which told us when the waves arrived and how big the waves were. We would then type them into a computer system and be able to get a rough location for the earthquake. But bearing in mind we only had 30 or so stations so that was a rather imprecise process compared with what it is now. And you're looking at at least an hour. And then the final catalogue location would take months because what would happen is the the farmer would change those tapes, he would put it in a courier envelope, it would get couriered to us, we would take it out, read the data, and then analysts would look at it. And so that process, they changed the data once a week, so maybe it was a week before it got to us, it took a week to read it and assemble all the data, and so you talk about a month before you're starting to look at the, the, the data that's coming off the system. How long does it take now, Carolyn? One minute, really. <laughs> uh, if we're looking at precise locations for scientific research, it might take 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And that's where, with all of our stations, all of the hundreds of stations' data coming in at once. And does that process still involve people sitting down and calculating things, or is it all done in computers now? 
So the computer will do it all automatically. So within, within that minute, uh, the computer has done generally a, a really good location of that earthquake. We do have duty officers who are on duty 24 hours a day for a week. And uh, if an earthquake is large enough, they'll get a page and go and have a look at it. And it'll take about 20 minutes or so for them to just tweak that location ever so slightly to slightly more precise locations. So you've got really good at telling us when there's an earthquake, how big it is, where it is, when it happened. What are your plans for the future? The real holy grail here is to go into being able to give information about what has just happened, what the impact will be, not just that it's happened, but what the impact will be. What, what is the shaking level that people are likely to feel? I suppose to a lot of people, earthquake prediction is really important and they would love that we could do it but the state of the science is we can't do it. So the next best thing is to give the best information you can as quick as you can so that people can take action. So that a, a property owner for example or an infrastructure owner they might have bridges, they uh, might have buildings, we could tell them very quickly which buildings they should check first. Whether they need to close the bridge down and just check that out. Correct, yeah. So that's that's kind of, I think, where we're going. But, you know, I mentioned before the, the gaps in sensors in the South Island. We'd love to be able to fill all of those. We would love to be able to do the information delivery better than we do it now. But to do that, you really have to run a fully 24-7 staffed system. At the moment we get duty officers like Carolyn out of bed in the middle of the night to go and do that checking. So we would like a system where we actually run a 24-7 operations centre where people are awake at night and that's, that's the international best standard. The real driver for that is actually tsunami. If you had a regional tsunami maybe up the Kermadec Trench it may not be felt that strongly, so we can't use natural warnings. You know, you feel an earthquake, you're near the sea, you get out of there. We can't use that because these will be far enough away so they won't be felt very strongly, or the waves will be going through the volcanic region here, and so they'll be attenuated. So they'll get to Bay of Plenty, Coromandel, Auckland, Northland, uh, maybe in less than two hours, you can actually give a, a, a reasonable warning if you've got that much time, but people won't necessarily feel those earthquakes. So I think that's the real um, the driver. You know, you talk about the uh, killer app um, in, in, in the IT world. Well, this would be the, the killer app for us to be able to do. And this reporting back to people to go, this is what the likely impact is, is that going to include the kind of feedback that you already get from people where people can go online and go, hey, this is what this earthquake felt like to me. Yeah, our felt reports have been uh, a really long-standing tradition uh, here at GNS, so they're, it's citizen science that's been going on since the 1800s, so we're definitely um, wanting to keep that going, and people love uh, filling those in. We're working at making them faster, so instead of filling out a really, really long-winded uh, questionnaire, you just need to pick a picture that best re represents how you felt it, and, and that's all you need to do. And now with with the advent of cell phones, your cell phone knows where you are, you don't have to enter your address, that sort of thing. So it's becoming a lot quicker. 
Can you get any information directly from people's cell phones with the accelerometers on them? There has been projects that have looked at that. I don't think it gives you that much more information than the person will give you themselves because they're not usually in a position where they're sensing the, the actual earth, they're, they're sensing your desktop or they're sensing your pocket. Yeah, I think those uh, types of networks are best for countries that don't have a great network of uh, sensors like GeoNet does and also countries with a high population. I think uh, I read some study that said that one in 1,000 cell phones will be in the optimal position to record an earthquake and so you need a, a, a great many number of cell phones uh, to, to get that one in 1,000. How does GeoNet compare to monitoring systems overseas? We're pretty good. <laughs> I, I think the big difference is the integration of all of the geological um, hazards monitoring in, in one system, whereas internationally it will be one organisation that does the volcano monitoring, another that does the earthquake, the normal earthquake monitoring. It might be yet another one that records that strong ground motion. Uh, and then the GPS network will be run by yet another. So it's, it's up to five different organisations. Whereas in New Zealand, because of our size really, we can't take total credit for this, but because of the size, the economies of scale are there. So if we do it all in one system, it, it's, it's the most efficient way of doing it. One of the things we've heard a little bit about in the last few years are slow slip earthquakes. Tell me about those. After we put in one of the early stations up near Gisborne, we noticed this, this kink in the, in the trace of the data coming out. And uh, for you, the first thing you think is there's something wrong with the instrument, but there was another instrument being run by a survey relatively close, and it showed the same thing. And so we knew it was real. And what is actually happening is there's patches on the interface between those two plates I was talking about, where the Pacific plate goes down under the Australian plate, that actually slip what we call aseismically. They slip slower but faster than they would normally move. So you can have a slow earthquake, if you like, that takes two weeks and, or months. And they can be magnitude seven if you add up this, you know, the amount of um, slip and uh, so forth, but they are happening over a long time, so you're not feeling them. So they are contributing to the plate motion on this margin down the east coast of the North Island, but we've yet to really establish what effect they're having on the overall hazard, but they're incredibly important. And important enough so that big international projects are planned off that east coast of the North Island actually drilling holes down in, into the earth. When you talk about it contributing to the hazard, is that a case of whether it's somehow letting off pressure or building up more pressure? Well, it, it's really to the overall estimation of the hazard. doesn't mean that you're releasing some of that en energy without an earthquake, so that's a good thing, or does it mean that it is moving here but actually making some other patch closer to failure, so actually making the hazard worse? So that's the, the big question, and they happen in the region where between where the plates are locked together and not moving and where they're sliding freely. So they happen in that what we call a transition zone. And we've recorded more than 20 of these things along that coast since 2002. There are different types. So up near Gisborne, that one off the coast there, 
that repeats about every two years. Sometimes they're bigger and sometimes they're smaller, but if you look at a long-term trace, you see that about every two years there's this, this anomalous motion. They're around magnitude fives, maybe magnitude sixes. Uh, when you get down further to the south, around Manawatu and Kapiti, they these slow slip uh, occur slightly deeper. We're talking about 40 k's deep, 30 k's deep, and uh, they take they can take over a year. And uh, the one in Kapiti a few years ago was up to a magnitude seven earthquake, and all of that was stumbled upon really by accident. The, Ge the GeoNet's GPS network wasn't put out to record these things. We just, um, they were a, a, a byproduct of, of, of the network. I think one other thing that I'd just like to make clear is how important the EQC contribution was. And one of the things they stipulated that all data we collect is free to air. And that has been, it was unusual in 2001. But now it's the way the whole of government is going, and in fact internationally it's the way the world is going. So we like to think we're ahead of our time, but it was the fact that the EQC insisted in the contract that all the data was free to air was really important to where we've got to. A big thanks to Caroline Little and Ken Gledhill from Geonet. And have you ever wondered what the shakiest part of New Zealand is? Caroline tells me that although the Bay of Plenty and Tongariro regions get the most earthquakes, many of these are very small and very deep. Fiordland, on the other hand, gets fewer earthquakes, but they are larger and shallower, therefore more damaging. So, on balance, Fiordland takes the prize for the shakiest place. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast, and you can find more stories on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.